0: The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tombaugh, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. It's good to see you. Good to be with you all. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue in our series through 1 Corinthians. I think we're in our about 20th sermon now, and I think we'll finish this around September. Uh, That's that's the hope, and I'm still kind of praying and trying to decide on what we're going to do next. And as we turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we'll begin in verse 2, and we'll read all the way through 16. And as we read these words today, like we do every single week, let's stand in honor of King Jesus as he speaks to us, even right now, even today, through his supernatural word. And the Spirit says, beginning in verse 2, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. With his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven." For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave, to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And let's pray together, as I know we're going to need it. (laughs) Lord Jesus, now would you help us? as we navigate and look at and hear a very uh, confusing and challenging and difficult passage. So Lord, would you help us now to hear your word and to receive it as your word and to apply it to ourselves today, here and now. And it's in the mighty, awesome name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I know one thing is positive. Of everyone in this room, that you drove to Redeemer Church today and you were thinking the whole way here, I can't wait to hear a sermon about head coverings. Just, I hope Jeff preaches about head coverings. I've been waiting to hear about this my whole life. Look, I want to lay all my cards on the table about this passage. This is a very difficult passage to understand, it's very challenging. Um, A lot of cultural things are happening. And so let's uh, let's unpack why some of these things are very difficult for us right now today. Number one, this is difficult and challenging to hear these words because Paul is talking about a very challenging and countercultural topic in the first century. So what he was saying was countercultural then, and 20 centuries later, it is still very difficult today. And here's two other reasons why it's difficult. We are 20 centuries away from when Paul originally wrote this. And so we've got to hear this, and we've got to, okay, how do we understand this? And then another thing that makes it difficult is that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, a Greco-Roman city that is highly immoral, highly sexually driven. And so now we have to take these words that apply, and Paul's writing to Corinthian Christians in first century Greco-Roman Corinth. And so now, by the power of the Spirit, we've got to receive these words and go, how do these apply right now, today, Tomball, Texas, Bible Belt, Americana culture? These are totally different worlds. But yet through the power of the Holy Spirit, these words do apply to us. And I, I'm not kidding. I read this passage all week, multiple times, and I would get halfway through. I remember I was teaching a camp this week down in South Texas, and I'm in my dorm, and I'm studying for Sunday, and I'm reading halfway through, and I just stopped and said, what is going on here? All right, keep reading. And I would read it again, like, I don't know what he's saying. And I would read it all the way through, and I just kept going, what in the world am I going to say on Sunday? What does what this talk about? I think mean, Brian Block, one of the you know, great guys at our church, he texted me this week and just said, It's about Wednesday morning. He said, I can't wait to hear your sermon on Sunday. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 11 throws me for a loop. I can't wait to hear what you say. And I said, Me too. <laughs> throws me for a loop. I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say on Sunday. Um, because every sermon that I prepare, I, I read the text a ton, try to make notes and try to make jots and try to connect dots from across the Scriptures. Okay, this reminds me of, you know, Proverbs 2, and you, you try to get all these things together. I read church history, I read commentaries, and I try to listen to modern guys and what are they saying. So N.T. Wright, is a famed New Testament scholar, uh, I read his commentary on this section, and one of the first things he says was, I am not sure I have understood this passage. <laughs> oh, good, great, goody. I felt solidarity with you, John Piper. Okay, what is, I love John Piper. Been so blessed by him. What, is, what does he say? Zero sermons. Oh, wonderful. What does Tim Keller say? Zero sermons. What does Spurgeon say? Zero sermons. Man, so so. Hopefully, if you leave with one thing today about Redeemer Church, I hope it is abundantly clear to you how committed we are to expositional preaching. <laughs> to to believing every word of God is inspired. Every, this is the best part of the sermon, I think, right now. And how all of it is sacred, how all of it matters, and that I'm committed to preaching through books of the Bible and believing what Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we need 1 Corinthians 11, and God has designed it for us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So this word has something for us today, and I really believe God has something for us. if I didn't believe that, I would skip it and let's go right to the Lord's Supper. We can, we can talk about the Lord's Supper, right? But no, God has something for us in this passage. What's happening now in this new area of 1 Corinthians, Paul's moving into four new chapters where he's going to talk about the church's worship gathering. He's going to give them instructions and corrections about when they're coming together, they aren't doing things rightly. If you've been with us, Paul has addressed uh, foolishness and wisdom and, and the gospel. he's talked about sexual morality, he's talked about division and lawsuits between the brothers and the church. he's talked about conflict. he just spent three chapters talking about food offered to idols and now he's moving into their Sunday mornings. When they gather together, so look at the headings just in your Bible. Chapter eleven, he's talking about their head coverings, and when they're coming together in worship, you can see chapter the end of chapter eleven is about the Lord's supper. Chapter twelve, spiritual gifts. Thirteen, the end of 11, the end of twelve. Sorry, he talks about how they're one body but with many members, how they all have different roles to play. 13 talks about love, how they love one another in their spiritual gifts and the way they serve. And then 14 is more about the spiritual gifts. And then look at the 1426, the heading there that that most Bibles give us a little heading to help us see what's being talked about. It says, orderly worship. Look at 26. What then, brothers? So what about everything I'm saying from 11 to now? That when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, revelation, tongue, different spiritual gifts are occurring here in this church. He says, let all things be done for building up. So then now all the way down to verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. So he's talking about their whole gathering together and how things need to be happening in accordance with order, with accordance with building one another up and encouraging one another. And what Paul's doing now in today's first address to them, he's addressing how they're carrying themselves in the gathering and this issue of head coverings. Um, Head coverings, one guy asked me in the last service, he's like, you didn't really say what head coverings were. I'm like, well, I tried as best I could, but even many scholars, like, we're not sure exactly what they were. Were they hats? Were these kind of veils? Maybe it was just the ladies having their hair pinned up with something over it. Like, we don't know exactly what was happening in in Corinth. But here's the principle. We're just going to see two things, really, the form and function of what Paul wants in their worship. And the first one is that there is a form and function of our moral and theological purity, there is a way to carry, and there is a purpose behind having moral and theological purity. So let's, let's get what's happening behind the text, what everyone in Corinth would know, and how they're hearing Paul. The cultural context of Corinth was that how having your head covered or having your head uncovered, no, no top, no hat, no, no hair pinned up, it was very significant. It was a big deal in this culture. And once we grasp this principle, we really begin to see how this applies to us. So what are head coverings for women? For women in Corinth, like most Greco-Roman cities, to have your head covered in public, this is all dealing with public, this is why it matters to their church's gatherings, having your head covered in public was a sign of respect. It was a sign of integrity. It was a sign that you were an appropriate woman. To have your head uncovered in public in the first century in the public's key, you could have your head uncovered at home, is no big deal, but in public, to have your head uncovered, this was a sign of sexual immorality, that either this woman is promiscuous, that she's available, uh, that maybe she's a prostitute, that she's, she's actively looking for someone to sleep with, and to definitely have your hair down and have it out, have it flowing, just like every woman in this room is today, because this is not bizarre in our culture, so it's totally fine. But in Greco-Roman culture, that was a sign that you were a prostitute. And so for a woman to have her head uncovered in public was like a neon light, like a moth to a flame, inviting guys, hey, come over here. I'm available. Come come check me out. I'm willing to entertain your flirting. I'm looking for suitors. And so you can see now, if that's what's real in Corinth, that Paul is saying, he's like, I'm walking into Corinth, and I'm seeing... Every woman acting and presenting themselves as someone who's sexually immoral. It's like every woman is being suggestive. I mean, he talks about when you're praying in the gathering, it'd be like women praying up here at the service and then wearing very suggestive, very revealing, sending very mixed messages. And Paul says, whoa, this has got to stop. Look at verse five. But every wife, so he's talking about those who are married, but this also applies to single women because they wouldn't want to be suggestive and be seen as immoral. Every wife who prays or prophesies, so women are doing great ministry in Corinth, with her head uncovered dishonors her head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is is the same as if her head were shaven. Now verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So Paul's whole point is that you should not be presenting yourself here at the church gatherings or really at all in your life as someone who is being immoral, as someone who is suggestive, someone who is being very promiscuous in their lifestyle. And I think Paul's using a wordplay here when he says that when a woman gets up in verse five and is praying with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. He's saying you dishonor yourself. Because you're sending, you ladies don't want to be seen this way, but you're sending these mixed messages, and they're wrong. But the wordplay here is dishonors her head. Well, who is her head? That's in verse 3, her husband. I want you to understand. So this is like the clear, helpful sentence and the whole passage. I want you to understand. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm leaning in. That the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So who's the head of the wife? Her husband. And this is theologically true. This is not culture-bound. This is theologically true, true of every marriage in this room, whether we recognize it or not, whether we are, obey it or not. We must obey it and see it and rejoice in it. This is how God has arranged it. And so when, this, when a wife is getting up and she's, she takes off her head covering and she's praying in front of the church, Paul's saying, whoa, you're dishonoring yourself and you're dishonoring your husband because you're married to him, but you're sending mixed messages that I'm promiscuous that I'm immoral, that maybe I'm single, that I'm, I'm looking for suitors. And Paul says, this cannot be. And so when you hear kind of what's going on, you're like, okay, I, I get what he's saying. He doesn't want anyone in the church sending mixed messages, wearing basically what would be like revealing clothing um, that's tempting others, like, okay, modesty. Okay, I kind of see some applications here. So why would the women do this? If they know this is true because they know their culture, why are they doing this? And why are the men praying with their head covered? That's what women do. We're going to talk about that in a second. So why is this happening? I think it's because they have taken the truth of the gospel, that we're one in Christ. As Paul teaches in every church, that in Christ, he says it in the book of Galatians, clearly in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. I think they took that truth, which the truth is so clear. Whether you're If you're a Jew, you're not a varsity Christian if you're a Jew. You're not a more superior Christian if you're a Jew. You're not a less than Christian if you're Greek. And that applies, especially in Greco-Roman culture, was highly man-driven, no respect for women. Paul's saying, no, you're a man, it doesn't matter. You're not a better Christian if you're a man, and you're not, you're not a lesser Christian if you're a woman. You're all one in Christ. So they took that truth and just said, hey, we're all one in Christ. I, gotta, I don't have to wear this head covering. I don't have to adapt to these social norms. We're all one in Christ. I don't have to, I can buck up against this social protocol. It doesn't matter. So you can hear kind of how that misapplication of that truth would really apply in the church. I can do whatever I want. We're one in Christ. We're the same. We're co-equals. I'm taking the head covering off. And by doing so, by twisting the gospel, by misapplying the truth of who they are in Christ, they are sending mixed messages across the church and out into the culture. Instead, and now in Corinth, the church would not be seen as something that holds to purity and that holds to sexual integrity, but now is wild, and now is promiscuous, and now is immoral. And so you can see how once you start to hear these things, you can begin to see some contours of applications for us. So how does this apply to us today? And the first string is that we should be committed to moral uprightness. We should be committed to sexual morality. The way that ladies carry themselves in public, and men, it's not irrelevant. There should be a non-weird, culturally appropriate, non-compromising to Scripture pursuit of righteousness, morality, and purity. And so first, for ladies, I think how we apply this and how we should think about it is that women should carry and conduct themselves in such a way that is abundantly clear they are married. That it's abundantly clear they're married. Because Paul's saying you're bringing dishonor to your head, to your husband, or the way you're acting. So ladies should never act in such a way that is bringing dishonor to their husband or that's suggesting they're not married, like wearing your wedding ring at, at all times and every normal opportunity and circumstance. Wear it off. I only take it off when I work out, which is like twice a year, and I leave it in my car, <laughs> play basketball, take it off. You know, you should, okay, I'm married all the, all the time. Taking your husband's last name, having same bank accounts. I mean, anything that you are doing in your life that is blurring the one fleshness of your marriage should be done away with. Sitting with their husband on Sundays, if they're a part of Redeemer, talking positively about your husband. So the passage says, don't bring, you're bringing dishonor. So we can hear that and go, okay, I won't bring dishonor. That's the negative. Don't do that. But we should also go, what's the positive? How can I bring honor to my husband? so you should look at how, how can I honor him? And one dimension is getting rid of any kind of flirty speech, any kind of flirty demeanor. That stuff's got to be crucified. That you're, you're not fl- free to be flirtatious. And the way you carry yourself and dress, act, and talk, should all be clear that this woman fears the Lord. That she's not trying to draw attention to herself. She's not trying to draw attention to her beauty. She's not trying to draw any attention to her curves, but only to Christ. One of Paul's concerns is that people would walk in to the Corinthian church and come and check out this new group of people, and it would look like all of the women are prostitutes, that they're all immodest women, that they don't care, that women are getting up and praying in front of the whole church, and like, whoa, this church is different. I mean, that cannot be. We're all saying that's not how Christian women look. It'd be like walking in here and seeing women, all the women wearing super tight clothes and very short skirts and super revealing tops. That would not be in accordance with holiness. And women, especially on Sunday mornings, this is Paul's point in our gatherings. And I think anytime we're in public, really, if you're dressing in such a way to get the attention of men, and you know it, dressing in such a way to get the attention of men, you must repent you should want to dress in such a way and carry yourself in such a way that you are ignorable to other men but looking to thrill your husband that's really how we should operate i don't want to draw attention i don't want to draw the gaze of any other man i just want the tractor beam gaze of my husband i want him to be like that that cartoon character like ahuga oh, i want him to be <laughs> doing that i'm not looking to get any other man's gaze Modesty really is a virtue and it's it's the point. It's biblical. And so now I'm not going to walk through now. Let me walk through 99 points of acceptable garments. That, that You start doing that, you start getting cult-like, okay? We're, we're not going to do that. But this is, so that does need to happen. It needs to happen in discipleship. It needs to happen with older women telling younger women, hey, uh, that, you really should think this through. It happens with more mature women telling women who are growing, hey, let's, let's think about how you're wearing this and how, how you talk to that server when we had our girls' night, that, that's something you, you need to check that. That needs to happen. And this is a place where it can happen. And there should never be a, oh, you don't judge me. No, that's just ridiculous talk. We know that's not scriptural. Yes, we do judge one another. And not a sense of salvation, but a sense of sanctification. Am I walking in accordance with God's word? Am I following Christ? This is Titus too. older women helping younger women. And it's biblical. 1 Timothy nine. women should adorn themselves. I mean, Jesus, that's what I love about Jesus. He really does care about our entire lives. He cares about what we wear. He cares about how we act. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. It doesn't mean you got to wear moos and non-pretty things and just kind of androgynous, just canvas, okay? That's not like, you can wear feminine things with modesty and self-control. I remember when we went to Thailand. So how does this apply? Okay, it's very different in our culture. So how do we think about another culture that we're not aware of? In, in Thailand, being there on a mission trip a few years back, for the ladies, the American ladies who went on the trip, for them to wear shorts that they would normally wear, just mid, mid-thigh, above the knee, whatever, to wear that in America is no big deal. It's non-suggestive. It's, it's non-alluring to wear that in the U.S. It's not like, whoa, no one's going to be like, zing, you know, when you, you, you saw that. It's just normal. But if they were to wear that in Thailand, it would be highly suggestive and inappropriate. It'd be like them walking around with their head uncovered, same kind of signal. And so they all had to wear really long skirts that showed about this much leg. And it was very hot, and they had to put up with it. We got to wear normal stuff. They had to wear that all the time. So you think about other cultures and what they perceive. This is what Paul's saying don't buck up against the social norms of your culture just because you're free in Christ. Just because you're free in Christ. That's exactly what Paul's saying. okay, fine, you're free in Christ? Look at what he says in verse six. For a wife will not cover her head. Why wouldn't she do that? I'm free. I don't need to do that. That's just a cultural thing. Paul says, okay, fine. Then cut your hair short. Since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off hair, just shave your head. That's basically he's saying, you don't think it's a big deal what you wear? Fine. Go get your cheetah print top, your leather thigh-high boots, and leather skirt. Well, that, that's exactly what he's saying. You don't think it's a big deal? Dress like a prostitute then. Because we all know intuitively, when you see that kind of clothing, you know intuitively, eh, that's, that's, that's probably not a, a bible study leader. You, you just know intuitively these things, they sink wrong messages. Yes, we're free in Christ. We're not free to be rude. We're not free to be ridiculous. We're not free to be self-centered. We're not free to buck up against non-sinful social, cultural, cultural norms. So that's ladies. Now, what about men praying with their heads covered? This isn't about wearing hats inside. I remember hearing that all the time growing up as a little boy. I'd you know run in wearing my Seattle Mariners hat, not because I'm from Seattle, I just like Ken Griffey Jr. And I'd run in, they're like, boy, get that hat off your head. Okay, you know. And then I put it on in the bathroom, like, you can't control me, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> this is not what this is about, that, oh, it's a dishonor to wear, it, have your head covered. No. That's like a southern thing. And okay, yeah, I should have adapted to that. It's seen as disrespectful to wear we had indoors. When you're at the dinner table, it's seen as disrespectful around some older folks and some people, especially from the South, to take your hat off. Even though I remember visiting some friends up north, they thought it was disrespectful in Pennsylvania for, for me to say thank you, to the, thank you, ma'am, to the lady holding the door open for me. What, you think you're better than me? You're like, just holding the door. I just said thank you. So what? Am I, I'm saying thank you. I'm like, no, okay, fine. I don't need to say thank you. It's actually easier. I prefer not to say thank you because I'm selfish. So what is it about this men having head coverings? Some of the pagan practices in Corinth and in, in the worship of idols, the men would take their garments, usually like a toga or some kind of robe, and they would make hood-like attire, put it on their heads, recognizing and showing respect for the deity they're trying to worship, and they would cover their heads and then pray, do sacrifices, whatever. And so now there are men in Corinth who are coming up to pray, and now they're putting on the hood, and they're praying. And Paul says, don't do that. You're confusing your worship. Your head... Verse three is Christ. So you've been accepted in Christ. You've been redeemed in Christ. You're now in Christ. You don't—he's your authority. You don't need that practice. And so you're going to confuse people. What a guy who comes to Christ from that that hood wearing cult, and now he's like, okay, yeah, I totally believe in Jesus. And he comes in and he sees one of the guys leading prayers, putting his hood on, and be like, whoa, I thought this was something else. Really, you can really get a sense from Paul here. How vital it is, and this applies to every church around the world, that we should all be asking, what are we communicating when we gather? What happens when we gather here? What messages are we sending by how we talk, how we interact, the kind of songs we sing, the messages, our small groups? I mean, what are we communicating as a church when we gather? What are we telling the world? What are we telling each other? I had a guy recently tell me, I, I think he was an unbeliever, and one of the services, he's just like, man, you know, it was fun being here. I'm usually not at places like this. I thought the songs were dumb. I thought the songs were lame, that they were ridiculous, they were insane, that made no sense at all, just cheesy. Like, hey, man, I'm glad you came, though. He's like, but when you preached about racism, against racism, then I leaned in. Yeah. like, okay. I mean, yeah, absolutely. What he said to me is exactly what I would think to hear from an unbeliever. These songs, talking about Jesus, this carpenter from Galilee being alive for 2,000 years, lame. You're an unbeliever. You should think, this is lame. And I was watching a Simpsons episode, you know, some clips on YouTube, and one of them, they were talking about a cult that came up in Springfield, and they were, like, worshiping turtles, and Bart goes, oh, well, I'm glad that we got ourselves straight, and we worship a carpenter who's been alive for 2,000 years, being very subtle. And I thought, hallelujah, when I I heard it, but they weren't. Of course, to unbelievers, it's ridiculous. So we should be communicating strongly, clearly, with our gatherings, with our sermons, with our songs, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. This is our message. So Paul's point is we need to assess what we're doing. And I remember when it was really popular, uh, like the, there might still be the kind of large wooden beaded necklaces and bracelets, very stylish, just brown wood, and you see guys wearing them. And, okay, it's, you know, cool, whatever, it's pop culture, whatever. Well, even I saw even on one website where they were selling these large wooden beaded necklaces and bracelets, and that they were described as Buddhist necklace. And so as a Christian, you should go, yeah, I shouldn't wear that. I know it's cool. I know it's pop culture. I know Brad Pitt had one. But I'm a believer. I don't want to send mixed messages with what I wear, with who I am. So if you bought it, you toss it in the trash. Or you find the receipt and you get your money back. We should be communicating with our whole lives. Jesus is our leader, and moral and sexual purity matters. And this is why men who are now covering their heads, Paul says to them, no, you're you're, you're looking like a woman, and you should not do that. We recognize the form and function of men and women in Christ. We recognize the form and function of men and women in Christ, that God has made men to be men and to act like men, and that God has made women to act like women, to be women, and to look like women. It's glorious, and it's by his design. And when we twist that and we kind of subdue that, then we start to really subdue the power and the message of the gospel, the message of Christ and his church. When we remove gender, we really start to kind of blur kind of these powerful, clear lines of the gospel. Paul gives instructions to Titus. Here's how men should act. Here's how women should act. Ephesians 5, here's how husbands should act, here's how wives should act, because following Jesus, being made new in the gospel, new in Christ, gives guidance for what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Look at verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. So Paul is saying we know there are certain physical characteristics and traits that belong to men and belong to women. And now he talks about hair length here. And this is amazing. I mean, in the first service, there were a couple guys that had long hair. And then one of our sisters in Christ, you know, she, she has a shaved head, uh, just kind of like buzz, really, really tight because she was doing it with a friend of hers that was going through chemo and she was having solidarity with her. And so they're both sitting here and I'm looking at them and going, oh Lord, help me, you don't navigate these words. <laughs> He's talking about hair length here. he doesn't say how long. If it's past the earlobe, eh, too much. I mean, because every culture is different. So in Greco-Roman times, they knew intuitively. When he says by nature, I don't think he means by by God's creative design and decree. I think it's more, you intuitively know that to have, for a man to have long hair in some cultures, like in Corinth, it was seen as feminine and classified probably as someone who was a homosexual. But that's not true today. I know plenty of guys that have long hair. And when I see them, I don't think, is that a woman? Because in our culture, it, this is the, it's not abnormal. It's not weird. It's common. And so people don't wonder because you take the rest of the context, take the clothes, take the appearance, take the voice, take the posture, take the mannerisms, and you see it all like that's, that's a man. He's still masculine. This is really the point. you got to be masculine. you got to be feminine. And back then, for a man to have long hair, that was just like the tip of the iceberg. Everything else would follow. He was seeking to be feminine. If a man has long hair and he's trying to be feminine, that's a different issue. If a man has long hair because he thinks it's cool and it is in style in some parts of the world, okay. Like, that's, that's not unbiblical. So we have to apply this differently. And women having short hair back then, how short? We don't know. And there's sisters here, they have short hair. So... Back then, it could denote homosexuality or even being a slave. Now, as a woman, like I even had to Google short women's haircuts. I just wanted to see an example of tons. And got the red carpet, like Oscars. and like, okay, good. That should be safe. Like, nothing weird's going to pop up. And I'm looking through them and see Anne Hathaway. She has very short hair. She was from this movie she was doing. And, but it was styled. And I still, and now and I'm talking about it, I'm like, it's still like feminine. I don't wonder, is that a dude or. She's still being feminine, and it's, it's just above her ears, and it's not wrong because intuitively you know that's a woman. But there are some haircuts that you see on a woman you just intuitively, you go, hmm. You, you, don't, you don't have to pull out your cheat sheet and go, oh, she parted the other way. I don't know. No, you don't have to do those things. You just intuitively know that's, that's not feminine. And the same when you see a certain style on a man. And our way a man carries himself, you just intuitively feel that's not masculine. So Paul's point is that it should be totally clear among Christians. This is a man. This is a woman. This is a man acting like a man and rejoicing that God made him a man. And this is a woman rejoicing that she is a woman. And no matter what our culture says, and as transgenderism is now taking the culture stage, we, we stand firm on God's creative design and purposes. And we counsel people to follow God's design. And, and if you're struggling with that, struggling with transgender or you're struggling with same-sex attraction or are you or are your, your children, this is the safest place in the universe to talk about it. This is the safest place in the universe to seek counsel and to seek help. And it's in the church of the Lord Jesus we recognize the distinctions of function and form, that men and women are different, and we have different roles, and we have different designs, and yet we realize that our worth is not diminished. Our our worth is not diminished. Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand... The head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So this is Paul's theological point. He is driving home. And these verses are way countercultural today, as they are in every place. And, and the Greek word here for head, it denotes authority. It denotes leadership. It denotes direction. So the head, the authority, the leader of every husband is Christ. That's amazing. Scary. Fear of Lord, scary. And the head, the authority, the leader of every wife is her husband. Ephesians 5, let the man see that he loves his wife, and let the wife see that she respects her husband and submits to him. This doesn't mean clear. And we got to hear this because I know we hear things like this, we're like, eh, okay. we got to hear this and go, this is true. This is like the straight theological truth. This doesn't mean men are better. And this doesn't mean men are superior. And this doesn't mean men are more important. And any man, any husband that thinks that way in his marriage is a moron and should repent immediately. Every man, every husband in this room, after hearing this verse, your head is Christ, you should be rattled down to your genetic code that when it comes to my marriage, my home, my family, the Lord of all has his gaze on me. I mean, you see it in Genesis 3. Eve takes the fruit. What is God's first words? Who does he speak to first? Adam. Because the head of every wife is her husband. And any man slacking off in the house not loving his wife like Christ loves the church, not shepherding his children to follow Jesus, not bowing and praying with the kids at night and just kind of backing off, being passive, you need to wake up and repent immediately. This isn't ever to be seen as some, the guy's the king of the house, he comes home from work, he kicks back in his chair, he can tell his wife what to do, tell the kids to get out of the room, all that kind of stuff. Daddy needs to relax. No. No. This is Ephesians 5, men are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Caring for her, sacrificing for her. If the wife is always sacrificing more in the marriage, it's not biblical. Because the man is supposed to love like Christ loves the church. They're lead servants, lead sacrificers. To be the head is to be the leader. And that isn't characterized by selfishness, but selflessness like Christ. And when we hear verses like this and our skin crawls like, Ugh, I don't know if I like this. stuff. We, we don't like to hear things like this because we've seen a lot of idiotic husbands who claim this. We've seen a lot of moronic husbands who claim this and then don't live it. And they give these verses and they give Christianity and they give complementarianism, this truth, they give it a bad rap because they're being morons but rather they should confess and repent and seek the help of the Holy Spirit. I love what Legan Duncan says about this truth, about this verse. Distinctions in our male and female role relationships, they don't mean inequality between men and women, nor do they contradict the fact that we need each other. They don't contradict the fact that we need one another and that we are utterly and mutually dependent upon one another. I absolutely need my wife. I, I totally need her and she totally needs me. We're mutual, complement one another. And verses 11 through 12, Paul's summarizing Genesis 2, how woman was made from man and for the man to, to be the helper. And look at what he says now in verse 11. Nevertheless, though man was made first and woman was made second, nevertheless, and the Lord woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. Verse 12, for as woman was made from man, So now, man is born of woman. Okay, yeah. Eve was taken from Adam's side, but every man in this room was born from a woman. We're not independent of each other. We need each other. I can't imagine how much of a wreck my life would be in our house without my wife. And any man who thinks otherwise, you're nuts. My life would be in chaos without her. It scares me to even think about it, what what my life would look like. So yes, Christ is the head of man. And this isn't to say that women and wives don't submit to Jesus. Of course they do. Ephesians 5 is clear on that. But man is the head of the woman. And I know a lot of people hear these verses, and our culture hates these verses on this concept and thinks, oh, there's Paul. He just doesn't value women. He's just empowering men to run over women. That is not true. And any man that's just trying to be authoritarian needs to have just brothers in Christ, call him to repentance. And if that's happening in your house, you you confess to your brothers. You come and tell the elders, my husband is being unloving to me. He's being a jerk to me. He's abusive to me. Church discipline is supposed to happen. It doesn't go, hey, it's the Bible. You just let it go. No. He's supposed to love you like Christ loves the church. That needs to be played out in discipleship and community. These verses, I mean, this never happens in our house. That, oh, hey, I'm the head. I'm a leader. We're doing it. It's always together making decisions. What do you think about this? Let's do this. I love the way John Piper characterizes it, that it's the man should be going, honey, let's, let's do this. What, what do you think about this? Let's consider this. Let's consider this. And that doesn't mean the wife can't say, hey, honey, I was thinking this. What do you think about this? Let's do this. But if the man is never stepping up and never saying let's, 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 then he's not being biblical. And I've never, ever had to go, babe, I'm the head. We're done. We're going to Lupe, okay? (laughs) That doesn't happen. Look at the last one. To have to to submit and to have a head and to have a leader, look at what, yeah, some people think, oh, Paul's just demeaning women. Look at what he says at the very end of verse 3. I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So the head, the authority, the leader of Christ is God the Father. I mean, whoa. So lest we think having a leader, having someone we submit to is demeaning, is disempowering, is a sign of weakness, Paul says Jesus submits to the Father. I mean, wouldn't you think the order, if you were presenting these truths, you would present it the other way? I know I would. I would naturally present it a different way. I would say Jesus and the Father, Jesus and husbands, husbands and wives. But Paul doesn't present it that way. He presents it, husbands, Christ and husbands, husbands and wives, and then Christ and God. Because if you deliver it the other way, you lose the oomph and the power and the significance that Jesus looks to the Father. This doesn't make Jesus less God. So for a wife to submit to her husband doesn't make her less human. This doesn't make Jesus less valuable in the Trinity. So to submit to your husband in your marriage and to recognize that he is the leader does not make you less in the marriage. It isn't demeaning, it isn't debilitating to submit because Jesus did. John 5.30, listen to what Jesus says. He says, I can do nothing on my own. And he's the Lord of all. He's supreme. He's the king of the universe. And he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Whatever the father does, I do it. And I only do what the father tells me to do. Jesus did the will of the father. He's saying, I mirror my father. I only do what I see him doing. He's my model. And what was the father's will? What was the father's will? Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Bringing him to grief. And it was his wounds that brought us healing. No will. So when we're talking about submission, Jesus says, I submitted to death. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This applies to men and women, all of us. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So this is a husband considering his wife more significant. This is a wife considering her husband more significant. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So this is a husband looking to the interest of his wife. This is a wife looking to the interest of her husband. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now it's it's ours. We have it. We have the mind and power and life of Christ now at work in us. And what did he do? Who though he was in the form of God, he was Spirit, just like the Father, just like the Spirit, and just like the Son, they were all Spirit before He became a man. But He did not count that a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So you see how the blood-spattered cross of Christ is instructive for all of us. This is not just some isolated, hey, if you're gonna think do this, no, this is yours. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Jesus shows men and husbands what it means to be a man, what it means to lead, what it means to sacrifice. And Jesus shows women and wives what it means to be a woman through his cross, what it means to follow her husband, what it means to sacrifice. We're both learning from Christ. He saves us. He liberates us. He pays for our sins. He takes all of our crimes upon himself. He pays for them. He rises again from the dead. And now he gives us a model for how to live. And not just a model that is impossible. He gives us a model that is absolutely empowered by Jesus himself. Jesus is not asking any wife to do anything that he is not empowering you to do by his death and resurrection. And Jesus is not asking any man to do anything that he has not already done and has empowered us to do by his death and resurrection and now by the filling of the Holy Spirit. We never move past the gospel. The cross and the Christian life are always together. Have this mind among yourselves. Christ, guys, is your head. And ladies, your husband is your head. And we look to Christ who did the will of his father. And I love what Paul says in verse 16. Look at the last verse. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, if anyone wants to fight about this, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I love this. He's basically saying, if anyone anyone wants to argue about what I just talked about from verses one to 16, too bad. There's no other way. No other church in the first century does it another way. No other legit church does it another way. So don't waste your breath. I should start putting that at the end of my emails. (laughs) If anyone wants to be contentious about this, good luck. Good luck finding another legit church who does it another way. We must understand that Jesus patterns our entire lives. There's nothing about us that we're just left to do how we want it. But we're always constantly asking Since Jesus is my Lord, how do I live? This is why these women should not take off their head coverings, because they're sending wrong messages. This is why men should not put on those head coverings, because they're sending the wrong message about Christ being their Lord. This is why men should act like men and women should act like women, because we recognize that Jesus is Lord. So when we gather, it's all for his fame to make much of him. So we should be asking, even as you came to the Redeemer today, am I about me or him? As I I walked into worship today, am I about me or him? And in our homes, how we carry ourselves. As you're putting the kids into bed tonight, and as you and your wife settle in, you should be asking, am I honoring Jesus? Or Or is it all about me? And we should be seeking to unblur in our body, in our church, in our lives, anything that hinders the free and clear proclamation of Christ, his cross and his resurrection. That's the point of today. And I really hope you drive home today and you think I'm glad I heard a sermon on head coverings. Christ be praised. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now, would you help us by your spirit to examine our lives and to see if we are doing anything that is not bringing honor to you, the way we act, the way we dress, the way we present ourselves, the way we carry ourselves, that we would be in line with your will, that we would live, that every man in this room would live with the awareness that Christ is his head, head. and that every wife would honor and live in such a way her husband, that every husband would look to Jesus for how to love his wife, and that every wife who says that she fears the Lord and honors the Lord Would look to Jesus to see how to live. So Lord, help us now by your spirit. Would you take these ancient words and make them real to us today? And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, amen.